Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around the country and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RT Online and via our website with your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Uh, very shortly on the programme, thinking about online shopping and how just do they know the exact product to put on the webpage for you. We'll be finding out more about that. But first, Niall Kitson, our editor-in-chief, joins me. And the Facebook story, I'm sorry, I'm starting to get bored with it now. What is it? 87 million people have been affected, and that's in the US alone, yes? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's significantly more than Facebook thought. Uh, initially, they were saying, what, 50 million, but it's 87 million worldwide. And do you know how many people in Ireland have been affected? Uh, I they said a couple of thousand, but I wouldn't imagine too many. Go on, how many? No, this is going to blow your mind a little bit. Forty-five thousand. Forty-five thousand people. What? Forty-five thousand people took that test. No, and here's the scary thing: fifteen people took that test. Hang on, fifteen people took that test, and forty-five thousand of their friends had their data stolen. Yes, that's shocking. No wonder the numbers are so big. Yeah, what is yeah, it for the UK? Scary, isn't it? Uh, gosh, I couldn't. I couldn't even. I think it's a couple I, of hundred thousand. I, I think they bumped it up to somewhere close to a million, anyway. Uh, and looking at the overall numbers, I can understand now why uh, Mark Zuckerberg is giving the uh, proverbial finger to the UK government, who are demanding that he come and speak to them. Why should he? Eighty-seven uh, million people in America, uh, one million in the UK. Uh, who cares? It's too small. Uh, yeah, that's probably his rationale, all right. But he's been doing a little bit of a charm offensive this week. I mean, he's he's gone before Congress and he also gave a, um, a conference call to the press where he said something very interesting and scary. Um, he said, if, if you were doing a search for somebody on Facebook, not based on their name, but based on their email address or their phone number, uh, which you can also do, the chances are their data has already been scraped. So effectively... You should act as if your Facebook profile has already been scraped by somebody. Forget whatever privacy settings you have up there. You have to act in a way that is all right, that already assumes somebody else knows an awful lot about you. And it's scary going in. Have you been into your Facebook account to see what they know about you? And have you seen any surprises? Do you know what? This is something that is going to change from uh, from the end of this week, the way that you'll be able to go in and see what apps you have installed, uh, what level of access you have, who's been looking at them, who, who's, who, who gets to look at your data and whether you have been compromised. That's going to be a specific little uh, drop down option um, compromised by the Cambridge Analytica scandal, not necessarily by something else in case something else pops up. Um, so. Uh, it's 
pretty scary times really mm. if you if you sign up for a service in good faith and a couple of years later you're told well do you know what your data probably wasn't very safe with us it's probably been robbed by somebody else mm. and being used to well, one thing i've been mentioning to people i say you know kind of when you go around the web and they say log in with facebook and people go yeah yeah, yeah i prefer to do that because i don't want to give them my email address and i'm like well you know that when you log in with facebook you automatically give the website your email address and they're like uh, uh, and you give uh, them an awful lot more and an awful lot more as well like you know so that was interesting and then i had to look at my own facebook stuff and as you know i never trusted facebook yeah <laughs> so there's very little about me actually on facebook and most of it is locked down but i had a look and uh, there were there were a lot of check-ins and places i've been to uh that i've never done a check-in in my life yeah you know what i for a while my facebook profile showed that i went to school somewhere i didn't actually go to school you know, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think more than, uh, anything, Facebook is just losing the trust of a lot of people or their beings. But we'll see how it's going to pan out. It's going to be an interesting uh, week next I, week. Actually, I have to mention some yep. important features that they've put out. Um, yes, go on. One, because they, they have changed their, pri- their privacy settings. So one of the things that really stood out for me, uh, well, a couple of things. Um, Facebook login. Okay. They're, they've changed that. So, um, you will not uh, allow apps to ask for access to, to personal data like your religion, your political views, your relationship status, basically all the personal stuff. So you'd be, you'll be allowed to log in and the specific developer will be able to see things that are only relevant to what they do, right? So say if you download a calendar app, they will only see what things you enter into the calendar app, not necessarily things that you're also interested in right so that level of data or your friend's birthdays that they can suck in that sort of thing uh, another thing that they've done which uh, really freaked people out the fact that they they will they were taking metadata from your phone call and your message history and your text history and all that sort of thing um, they are going to delete that metadata after a year and they confirm that no we're not actually looking at the content of your of your messages just the just the metadata which you know ooh fantastic great <laughs> but, but it was one thing that really shocked people when, when it came out um so again and also always look at the settings because there's always a setting in there that will help you lock down your profile but you have to go looking for it uh, one of the things facebook uh, and zuckerberg said was uh, we want to give people GDPR standard protection, not GDPR enforced protection like any European country. They want to give you that standard of protection, but you have to go looking for it in your profile. So these settings will all be there, but you have to go in. You have to make sure you're making the right decisions for you. Well, we'll wait and see what they do because they're changing the privacy settings and allegedly making them more easy so you don't need a university degree to uh, discover (laughs) or figure out uh, how it all works. Listen, one other story on the news this week, just to mention quickly, is that there's been a big defection from Apple uh, or to Apple, I should say, from Google. Who's Who's on the move? Yeah, Google's uh, chief of AI, John, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Janadrea. Right. He was the, the head of Google AI, uh, and it's called Google Brain is their AI division. And he basically has overseen um, Google Assistant doing particularly well, uh, while Siri has been dogged by apparently largely internal problems within Apple that have really stopped the, or re- really, I, I guess, stalled the development of the product. Uh, two, two things actually quite interesting in, in, in stalling Siri. One, um, internal wrangling. 
politics. The other, the fact that Apple aren't going the same way as Google and Amazon. They don't want to take that user data driven approach. They want, they don't want to have the device that can potentially be listening to you all the time. They want something that's enclosed and something that, you know, they, they don't have the, the interest in mining. It's sort of a privacy first device. Uh, the problem being, um, it's it's not really working out for them terribly well. Uh, I I guess it's almost a, a heuristic model. They they want to take the structure of how people think without actually filling it full of full of you know simple questions and answers. But um, yeah, that's Siri is in big trouble. It was released seven years ago. Can you believe that? Seven oh. years of Siri not being fantastic. <laughs> Hang on a minute, because this, this is a bit of a surreal moment, right? Because Niall Kitson is slagging off Apple, whereas I'm about to say something nice about them. Uh, I have to say congratulations to Apple with the whole Facebook uh, thing, because one of the things Facebook did with Android phones was it was able to access your contacts and suck all of that into Facebook and use it for whatever reasons, where mm-hmm. it wasn't able to do that with iPhones because Apple wouldn't allow access to your contacts. So bravo, Apple. Yep. Fair play. Fair play. Strange old worlds. Niall, thanks for keeping us up to date on all that's going on. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. For this week's interview, Niall has been looking at, I suppose, online shopping is a, a fair way to describe it. Zalando is a company that's very big in Europe and will be very similar to Amazon. And they have uh, an office where they do an awful lot of research here in Dublin. And what they look at is the amount of data that they get through that website. Now, if you think of any online website, the amount of data that they have on the products and the type of products and the size of the products and how many people buy it and yada yada and then who buys it and where they're from and what the other stuff that they looked at is an amazing amount of data which they are able to crunch and then kind of take a pretty good guess or an accurate guess or more accurate guess about what it is that you might be interested in buying based on your preferences and those of other people like you. But how do they get to all of this? Well, Adam Birmingham is a delivery lead with Zalanda and he sat down with Nile Kitson and they just talked about all things data science and how these things work behind the scenes. So I guess, Adam, the first thing to notice is that this is a fairly unassuming building. It, it actually took me a, a few minutes to get here. And I think that's because Zalando has something of a, I guess, a split personality. I think it's fair to say Dublin's is the, the brains of the operation, if you will. But uh, for those of our friends on the continent, Zalando has a very different um, as a brand, it has a very different recognition factor. So just tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, so Zalando is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary it, it, uh, this year. Um, it's quite a successful startup, having uh, started up selling sneakers in Berlin 10 years ago. Um, those founders are, st- are still with and growing the company. Um, it's been through a series of transformations, both uh, expanding globally and understanding what it means to sell fashion across cultural and geographical boundaries. Um, but ultimately, they IPO'd quite successfully and subsequently went and pivoted more towards a platform strategy. So doubling and tripling the investment in technology as, as part of uh, the workforce and the, and the capital investment. Uh, with really seeing that's how we will do the next jump in scale. So after going across 15 countries and becoming the, the market leader in uh, e-commerce and fashion in Europe, a really a, a different type of mentality is needed. It's all about data. It's all about reusability and, and scalability. Um, and Ireland was the, or Dublin was the first technology hub founded outside um, 
the Berlin office and it was founded during this period so it was founded with this idea in mind so plat- platform technologies uh, d- data first or data as a first class citizen was very much part of the culture of where this office was founded whereas elsewhere in Zalando they maybe had to go through a period of adjustment and change where they were really able to uh, try some of the new ideas about how to set up offices and culture here as a result we had some teething problems when we started off um, but I think we really settled into a, a, an office that has a, a lot of ownership and identifies very much with the, the mission yeah, I think uh, it's very important in looking at a company especially one with a tech angle I, I guess <coughs> Almost every company that provides a service this, these days likes to think of themselves as a technology company because they end up you know, developing their own proprietary pa- platform and Zalando appears to be no different. But when you look at the con- culture of a tech company, um, it very much speaks to the way people think as technologists as opposed to just employees. So tell us a little bit about how, how things work here. So it's, it's one thing to say I'd like to be a technology company trying to do that. As I've had the pleasure of working on many cross-functional uh, technology projects in my career, uh, it's, it's quite hard and quite challenging. So some of the words that you mentioned there, like platform, platform is as much about economics as it is about technology. It's about how you grow and how you create appetite and how you capitalize on demand and how you build technical resources that will scale for multiple uses. Um, and realistically, if you're going to grow data assets and data technologies, you can't just keep inventing them and producing them like you would in a factory. You need to be able to scale in a different way because it becomes too complex and too difficult uh, to manage. And when we look at scaling, of course, we look at diversifications, and this is kind of where, where the Dublin office comes in. So tell us a little bit about the kind of work that's going on here specifically. So the three main areas of work here is are basically um, correspond to our three very important data records if you're a very big e-commerce company. One is um, your product record. They're the things that you sell and you get money from for customers. So for obvious reasons, that's quite important. Um, the second one is customers. So understanding uh, whether your co- what your customer feels, empathizing with your customer, and being able to um, yeah, create new products that uh, offer new ways of experiencing the, the either the exploration of, of our product assortment or getting quick something we know you want to buy quite quickly um, and then lastly which is the area I work on mostly which is content analysis so that's analyze, fashion is played out in the world around us but also in the digital world and understanding images video text social media that stuff arrives at software systems in unstructured forms as HTML pages, as blobs of text, or as images that are bits and bytes. Uh, so we do put a lot of effort into technology that, that can understand these. Um, if you want to start in, in Zalando, start a new, a new product or get a new product off the ground, we provide a lot of services and reusable APIs uh, and AI toolkits that will allow you to do that. And what's interesting, uh, from my perspective anyway, is looking at the kind of data that is being extracted from files. And when you're looking at specific products, you're looking at all the things that make up that product. And and that can go from the color of the image presented down to the fabric, down to, naturally enough, price point. Absolutely. So you have your, your, as you say, your your business style attributes, which are your your inventory and your pricing. Then you have your uh, core attributes. So what size it is, what color it is, what the manufacturer is, who the brand is. But then you have other things you'd like to know about the product. I bet if you were building a software system, maybe to sell clothes to me, you might want to say, well, I'd love to be able to tell Adam, you know, what occasion he should wear this for, or whether it's relevant to that film we watched last week were people wearing it in that film these are much more dynamic and if you think about how fashion plays out in the real world it actually is quite dynamic and we've been living with a very static view of fashion in a shop 
they have a certain range on sale I choose between them and that's it with data we have a lot more power to be more dynamic more reactive and have those feedback loops with our customer Um, and our job working in data and AI is to leverage the benefits of AI which often is the less attractive or spoken about parts but AI actually allows us to be more consistent it allows us to scale quicker it allows us to produce new ideas quicker and allows us to do the things that were previously thought impossible um, ways of organising data or allowing data to be searched and when we look at the application of AI to retail, specifically we're looking at the elements of personalization and, uh, I guess, predictability. Uh, yeah, and e- even beyond that, you'd be surprised once you get very deep into an industry, all the applications of AI. Um, so, for example, it could be something as simple as, um, so maybe we have some suspicion that some records in our database are incomplete in some way. Every software company that has a large number of databases will know this problem, that they're either spotty or they're gathered in different ways or whatever. But AI can actually be used to fill in those gaps and, and kind of guarantee integrity over those systems. Similarly, monitoring data over time, detecting trends in what's written online. Um, Personalisation and customization is a big part of that as well. Um, as well as automatically being able to navigate um, an assortment. So if you go into a shop, they might have how many products on sale? 100, 200. In Zalando, we have three or four orders of magnitude more products than that and the mechanisms you need you can't put all them in a shop window for people to buy so the mechanisms of allowing people to sift through that and if everyone's been in a heavily personalized experience they'll know that you can easily find yourself in a bubble quite quickly and just because you bought black t-shirts last year doesn't mean that's all you want to buy this year um so it's, it's a lot about learning a lot about behavior um fashion itself has a whole background model of trends and influences from economics through to culture and media so if we just optimize everything for what everyone bought last year we're not going to win the game it's going to be it's going to be other kind of smaller initiatives they're using their intuition and reading the trends they're going to be able to do it so content plus product data plus customer data it all ends up in the soup on the platform and then new products can can use those i guess that sort of um puts the onus on you then to add a, a layer of what's going on in the zeitgeist at the moment what what do we think is going to be interesting six months down the line given x film is coming out or you know x model is popular at the moment or are these areas that you're looking to explore it's a really good question uh, and i think every engineer who has who has joined our data scientist who has joined our office since we were founded three years ago uh, has probably increased their fashion knowledge by about five times from from working here it's actually a fascinating industry and not one i've been work- i've worked in before uh, nonetheless it is very difficult to understand some of those deep fashion in- insights um, even just understanding the various attributes a dress has is quite hard uh, whether it's a spaghetti strap or whether it's a shift dress and so on you're laughing now right because there's a whole vocabulary of words that people wouldn't have come across but are actually very meaningful in the fashion domain and this is typical of something you would see working as a data engineer or data scientist working in a cross-functional team in a fashion domain actually oh there's a lot of domain expertise here and this is an industry that's been around for thousands of years um, one of the ways so we, we work across site quite a lot and there are um, functions within Zalando that specifically look at trend prediction, trend forecasting and and buying recommendations um, as a a really important thing in terms of mitigating our risk or identifying new opportunities. Uh, We In here, in our office, we have user experience designers but also we have fashion librarians who work with us and these are on-site specific fashion domain experts that would be seconded to projects to work on 
whether it's a vocabulary, whether it's interpreting trends, whether it's developing systems to identify trends, and the list goes on. Um, this, is, this has been a vital function to us. I, I don't know what Frankenstein we would have built mm-hmm. with, without having to be an expert in the loop. And in my career, having worked on many areas, law and government, publishing, um, j- journalist politics, etc., sports, uh, the, having, uh, as an engineer or data scientist, having access to that domain expertise is, is gold. And it actually makes a lot of the micro decisions so much better. I think that's a really interesting point that you raised there about so, sort of having skills that are in themselves portable and quite vanilla, but relying on that domain-specific expertise. So tell us a little bit about your, your own background. Yeah, so I, I started off my career as, as an engineer and um, quickly found myself working in R&D teams, but uh, having an appetite for more the R than the D, um, at which point I was, I was uh, young enough that I, and I had the opportunity to do a, a PhD, mostly looking at um, linguistics, computational linguistics, uh, sentiment analysis. Um, I then went on to work on some early stage ventures, uh, recommender systems as well, started getting a lot of experience with personalization, um, but ultimately left that after my postdoc to work on... Um, in a large publishing company uh, on, again, content optimization, personalization, that kind of thing. Um, and, but some of the team I worked with there moved, moved to Zalando and I, uh, they ultimately invited me to come for an interview. Um, at the time, I knew um, most of what I knew about Zalando was, was that they were um, one of the going from zero to, to no presence in Ireland, really spinning up a, an office quite quickly. But throughout that time, all the way through my, my PhD would probably be seen as reasonably applied, meaning that it involved building systems and working with real customers or users, and then ultimately later in the more commercial ventures, customers. Um, and I've probably made all the mistakes you can make in a cross-functional team and have a lot of learnings from that. Um, a lot of the principles in lean and agile, um, user-centered uh, design, um, and kind of research projects with really strong research questions, really good research problem settings are really important. I, I don't put all my chips in any, any one of them, but understanding those principles and when to apply them is, is really, really important um, in, any, in any project setting, understanding whether um, if you're working on, say, trend analysis uh, in, in journalism, for example, you want to see what everyone's talking about on Twitter, well, you know, you, you really got to think in my mind, well, how important is it I talk to a journalist here? Right? Can, I, can I make a pile of assumptions or should I really sit down and put my assumptions in front of someone and said, prove me that I'm wrong because I'm about to invest some research resource in this. Um, and I've done a lot of that over the years. It puts a lot of demands on the actual setup of your team. So m- managing cross-functional teams like, like I do now, there's a lot of considerations. So day to day, I'm working with people on my teams that fulfill a whole variety of different functions uh, and they all have to learn skills about dealing with other functions whereas an alternative setup might be you might have a data engineering office and it's populated full of back-end engineers working on platform engineering or Scala um, and they might be abstracted away from the customer or the product concerns by maybe a product manager or an engineering manager um, we find that really problematic once you add data science into the mix and deep domain knowledge into the mix. Suddenly there's too many handoffs, there's too many pockets of people speaking different languages, so we have to put them in the same team, and we have to get them moving towards the same goal, Um, and that's really, really important. And I guess you do have so many people speaking so many different languages, you will have the domain expert going, look, we need this, and it's it's almost blue sky thinking, all the way down to the developer who wants to turn it into a a specific data point, uh, and the UX guy in the middle, I suppose, who's who's trying to make it all attractive to look at. Mm. So, which skills do you find have been in the ascendant in the last few years? I mean, has has UX, for example, gone from being a a zero concern to, you know, the graphic design of of, uh, data? 
I think the trend we see mostly is kind of is um, people focusing on you know primary, secondary, and, and tertiary skills. So um, I think, for example, people working here, uh, even if you're a back-end engineer, for example, you should you still need to have skills in terms of uh, working and collaborating with a, a data scientist. So if they say to you, I'm running an experiment, I'm going to use uh, this type of algorithm, um, this is my evaluation results, you, you need to be able to have a conversation about that. You need to be able to challenge that work, just like you can with any collaborator. Um, otherwise, you don't get that kind of health, healthy tension. I actually see quite a lot of similarities managing data scientists working with engineers, as I've seen work working with designers, working with engineers. People think of it as very different, but actually there's a different set, there's a different mindset, So, and there's a different set of principles, and there's a different vocabulary used. Um, but if you getting people to work together day-to-day is really how you create that um, good communication. And we increasingly would have people who would want to move as well. So they might be saying, well, I have data science as a kind of tertiary skill, I can speak the language, I know the big concepts, I, kn- I know how to work in a team, uh, but I really want to be able to do a bit of this myself. And, th- and then they w- we would kind of look at developing them along the way to actually being more autonomous, less supervised uh, producing original experimental work for example, or if it was on the design side producing original designs or original um, unsupervised kind of uh, product design work or user testing Um, and that's really in this cross-functional domain you have to offer that to be at least somewhat frictionless um, rather than kind of putting people in boxes. Just in setting a a problem on a project, do you think it's that sense of mission or or towards solving a, a common problem that helps overcome all these uh, such differences in, in vocabulary or perspective uh, or creates a, an interesting space for collaboration that wouldn't necessarily have been there before. Uh, yes, I think, I think that's a very good point. And, um, and certainly what we would call them is, is the objectives or the uh, strategy for a product. So ultimately there is a shared language around a product and a strategy for a product. So in the product that I ha- help build, we have very clear um, uh, strategic uh, directions um, and objectives and these are the things that are the north star for anyone working on that project and they have a common language and the language is the language of product and customer um, because ultimately that's what you're trying to fulfill Um, but the way you how how do you manage that within um, a a large organisation well you cascade this down and you you interpret it with more detail at, at the lower level for each team so all of my teams would have a description of, well, what, what do our product objectives mean to me? What, what elements of them am I working on? And can I add a bit more detail that is described as the strategy for my team? And having this clear flow of, of information up and down is, is really, really important. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Adam Birmingham from Zolando. That's almost it for our show for this week. The programme is supported by irishjobs.ie for the latest jobs in IT. For example, if you want to work with Zolando, visit techcentral.ie forward slash jobs. That address, techcentral.ie forward slash jobs. And that's all powered by the good people at irishjobs.ie. Niall, just before we go, I have uh, one more thing, and that's a congratulations to my friends at Spotify. Oh, right. Okay. Far away. So the, what they've done is they didn't do an initial public offering and all that kind of stuff during the week. What they did was they took a listing on the New York Stock Exchange, allowing the people who've already invested in Spotify to sell the shares that they have, if they so wish. And the guide price was $132 a share. Uh, and they went on the market at $165 a share. And then the big headline was, and then it slipped down to $150 a share. So I think, you know, the fact that they were expecting 132 and they settled on 150 is really, really good, especially 
for a company that's never made money. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but will it? But will it now? It has all this. But will it? We, well, actually, do you know what? We wait and see uh, what happens with that because uh, the way these things work is generally once you start going on a public exchange like that, the investors start getting crowy and angry and demanding that you make money. So maybe that's just the uh, uh, the very pressure that we need. We shall keep an eye on that and, of course, all things tech around Ireland and across the world and keep you up to date with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. And don't forget to listen to our little radio programme here each week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson at Tech Central HQ, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.